0: There are some names that stick out like sore thumbs when you learn Arizona history. From Father Eusebio Kino to Barry Goldwater, there are just major figures you simply have to talk about in any retelling of the state's story. Through our little podcast so far, we've done our best to make sure these figures got their due recognition, We've discussed Coronado, Father Kino, Juan Bautista de Anza, Charles de Poston, Mangas Calderadas, Cochise, etc. at length. But I also hope you've gained an appreciation for some of the less mentioned, but still important and or influential figures who have graced and shaped this stage called Arizona. Here I'm talking about men such as Father Francisco Garces, Captain José Antonio Comadaran, High Jolly, John Russell Bartlett, Pauline Weaver, and General James Henry Carlton. Now, there are plenty of major figures left to get to. Geronimo, George W.P. Hunt, Jacob Hamblin, and Wyatt Earp will all eventually make their appearance. But I still hope to dive into the backbenchers, those that don't usually pop up in the history books for more than a sentence, or maybe a paragraph if they are especially lucky. And that will be the case today, because as the territory of Arizona was electing its first slate of territorial officials, the race certainly brought together a unique blend of people to vie for the open spots. And while they are all fascinating in their own way, there is one man whose story, full of twists, turns, enthusiasm, embellishments, exaggeration, and bald-faced lies, tops them all. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 50, That Charming Rogue. Welcome back, everyone. And can I just say how crazy it is that we are now at 50 episodes? Anyway, we are quickly closing in on the end of the Civil War years in Arizona, as we already saw last week that a lot of soldiers serving in the territory had nothing better to do than drink, gamble, and follow up on vague rumors of rebel plots. But our tour of the barracks now comes to an end, and we pick up where we left off two weeks ago. That's right, just like when those annoying candidate ads come back on TV, it's time to return to politics. I had originally planned to get into the actions of the first legislature today, but I, and by extension all of you, kind of got sidetracked by the always fascinating look at the men who gravitated toward political office in the 19th century. You will recall that when we left off on the political thread, Governor John N. Goodwin had proclaimed on May 26, 1864 that there would be a general election for the first territorial legislature on July 18th. In the meantime, the local citizenry went ahead and named Prescott and started construction on the governor's mansion and a place for the upcoming legislature to meet. That was the pitch-oozing, unchinked, floorless, and windowless log structure we talked about two weeks ago. Now, if you are having trouble sleeping at night, you can always pick up early state historian Thomas Farish's History of Arizona, which reproduces in all its glory the proclamation setting up for the election, the voting districts, the voting precincts, precinct judges, etc. But since many of you might be listening to this while driving, I'll help keep you awake by saying in brief that the vote was for a delegate to Congress, a nine-member council, and an 18-member House of Representatives. The July 18, 1864 election seems to have gone smoothly enough and I want to look at the various figures contending for each race. For the delegate to Congress, whose term would actually expire in December 1865, we have five candidates. Keep in mind that the Congressional Delegate was considered a prime and cushy job mainly because it meant that you didn't have to live on the rough frontier of Arizona, but would be put up in properly civilized Washington, D.C. and paid a government salary. So, you know, really having your cake and eating it too. I mentioned back in episode 43 that as the newly assigned territorial officials made their way west, they took to arguing amongst themselves who would get this plum assignment. The men who did eventually wind up on the ballot for the Congressional Delegate spot are something of an interesting gaggle, so let's take a look at them one at a time. The first was Charles Lieb. Lieb was a personal friend of President Abraham Lincoln and had originally been appointed Quartermaster for the Army of the Potomac. Though regarded as an honest man, some army contractors took advantage of him and fleeced the government for something like $3,000 to $4,000, which, you know, was a lot more back then. Because of this minor scandal, Lieb had been removed from his post after having served for a little less than a year. His other major claim to fame is that he had apparently written an army campaign song in German that apparently caught on well with the German-speaking troops fighting in the Civil War. Next up is William D. Bradshaw. Bradshaw had come to the territory in either 1863 or 1864 and established a ferry on the Colorado River with his brother at a place, called a shantytown by one history, named Olive City, which sat about six miles downriver from La Paz. He spent a good deal of time mining and prospecting, and Farish says that the Bradshaw Mountains in central Arizona were named for him. And though Farish describes him as, quote, a man of some culture with a fine presence and a good deal of personal magnetism, end quote, he was also an alcoholic and would eventually slit his own throat in what historians describe as a fit of delirium. The next two contenders were Samuel Adams and William J. Berry, much less is recorded about these two. One history of the territory only says they, quote, were less well-known pioneers, end quote. From Farish, we learn that Adams was an advocate for steamboat navigation on the Colorado, Gila, and Hassayampa Rivers, though the historian goes on to admit that, quote, of Barry, there is nothing I can find, end quote. And that brings us to the fifth and final candidate, None other than our old and dear friend, Charles D. Poston. Poston, who was originally appointed as the superintendent of Indian Affairs, had arrived later than the other officials because he had chosen to head first to San Francisco and then took a long, meandering sightseeing tour with journalist and writer J. Ross Brown before, you know, finally getting to his post. Historian Howard R. Lamar remarks that Poston being from Kentucky and having advocated territorial status back in the 1850s, was most likely a Democrat, but chose to run as a unionist for this particular election, for reasons I think are pretty understandable. Lieb was an unapologetic unionist. Bradshaw actually ran as a Democrat, while the remaining two ran as independents. Lamar describes the election as a, quote, Fast, spread eagle campaign worthy of Davy Crockett, in which contenders, quote, slammed, banged, and orated their way to election day, end quote. In the end, Poston emerged victorious, receiving more than twice the number of the votes of the runner up, which was Lieb. I will note that some historians I've read point to this not being a clean win exactly. Lamar says Poston was backed by Indian Bureau patronage and local Republican officials, while early state historian James H. McClintock says Poston was accused of having stuffed the ballot box a little using Papago Indians as voters. However he did it, after having secured his election, Poston headed toward Washington, D.C., but decided, why take the shortest route when he could easily take a much more scenic one through Panama instead? After all, it only cost the taxpayers about $7,000. McClintock relates that Poston later admitted that he wound up doing very little in Congress, likening himself to a tadpole among frogs. We will get much more into Poston's role as congressional delegate later on, but I will also give you fair warning now that we are actually nearing the end of Poston's role in the history of Arizona. Now that we have a congressional delegate, or at least someone willing to work in the more civilized climate of Washington, D.C. and live fat off the taxpayer dime, we can turn our attention to who exactly had been voted into the territorial legislature. Leading the nine-man council that composed the upper house was Coles Bashford, who had been appointed attorney general for the territory. Bashford was originally from New York, where he practiced law and became a district attorney before moving to Wisconsin. An ardent abolitionist, Bashford eagerly joined the Republican Party and was even elected to be governor of Wisconsin in 1855. Out in Arizona, he actually became the first lawyer allowed to practice law in the New Territory's courts. Joining him in the council were figures such as Mark Aldridge the Tucson farmer who was also the richest man in the territory and a former rebel sympathizer, King S. Woolsey, a prominent rancher and Indian fighter that we will get much more into later, and Francisco S. León and Jose M. Redondo, leaders of Arizona's Hispanic population. Moving into the house, we also see a diverse lot. Like many frontier political bodies, they were all fairly young. Only four of the 18 members were over the age of 40. Most were in their 30s, while five were still in their 20s. And if you look at the birthplace of those who sat on the council and in the House of Representatives, you'll find such diverse places as Ohio, New York, Maine, Alabama, Kentucky, Massachusetts, California, Indiana, Missouri, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Illinois, Delaware, Mexico, and Germany. Only two members of this first legislature, Council Member Francisco S. León and Representative Jesus M. Elias, are listed as having been born in Arizona. You can also get a feeling for how important mining was to the state, as 12 out of these original 27 men were directly involved in mining in some way. Lamar says that, despite all their diversity... Everyone believed that Arizona was destined to become a mining empire and that the government's job was to remove all barriers to the territory achieving that destiny. But before we tackle what the legislature tried to accomplish in our next episode, I want to pause the main narrative to tell the fascinating tale of who was elected as the first Speaker of the House of Representatives. Another old acquaintance, that charming rogue, William Claude Jones. I won't blame you if you don't remember Jones. He's kind of just popped up in the periphery in our story, and I haven't delved too deeply into his rather fascinating life and times. However, I did promise once upon a time that we would wrap up his story as much as we can sort out fact from fiction. So here's your refresher. In episode 32, we covered his early life. He was born around 1815, possibly in Alabama, but we can't be sure because his birthplace seemed to change with each telling. He sometimes claimed to have been born in Catalonia, Spain to a U.S. consul stationed there, a claim which, as usual for Jones, cannot be verified. He was very fond of these kinds of embellishments, such as touting service as a colonel in the Missouri militia, though this was most definitely false. Other claims were that he served as a colonel during the Mexican-American War, or that he had once been a deputy U.S. marshal in Texas, which, yeah, also turned out to be fabrications. As a grown man, he kind of ambled for a while between Arkansas and California, gaining some renown for his oratory skills and legal work, but was a presence in Missouri and Kansas politics before being appointed Attorney General for the New Mexico Territory. This is where he was in 1856, and really when I first introduced him, mainly because this is when he first met Charles Poston, then heading west to establish himself at Tubac. According to Poston, it was really Jones who coined the term Arizona for the western part of the New Mexico Territory. And I feel this fact alone justifies pretty much all the airtime I'm about to devote to him right now. Jones set up shop in Masilla and quickly made contact with the folks advocating separation from the government up in Santa Fe. During this time, we get some descriptions of him as charming, personable, popular, Good-natured and jolly. Though people always pair these descriptions with others such as eccentric and an erratic genius. Folks also recognize that he was something of a blowhard. One person said that he was a good lawyer, quote, when he would bend his mind to the business, end quote. And what was bending his mind away from the business? Well, women. Women. Jones's wife in Missouri, with whom he had two surviving children, divorced him in the late 1850s after he had pretty much abandoned them to take up his rambling life. Afterwards, he is reported to have married a very young Mexican girl, possibly named Maria del Refugio. New Mexico's delegate to Washington, D.C. believed the girl to be only 12 years old and actually petitioned President James Buchanan to fire Jones over this. Jones, however, submitted his resignation as Attorney General before that could happen. However, by 1860, it appears that Jones and Maria had separated. I wouldn't feel too badly for him, as we'll see, he was something of a Lothario. I name-checked him again in episode 37 when we found him in Massilla in 1861 and enthusiastically accepting a homemade Confederate flag, He also went so far as to give a very public speech in the town's main square, welcoming the rebels. Later, in episode 38, I mentioned how he had the bad luck of being in Santa Fe when Baylor's troops actually did invade New Mexico, and he was thrown into jail as a rebel sympathizer. Though he was eventually released, he was still stuck in Union-held Santa Fe and couldn't get south to Mesilla meaning that he missed his chance to run for a seat in the Confederate Congress, which, given everything I know about him, I'm pretty sure he would have done. Following the rebel capture of Santa Fe and then their retreat, Jones went with them, eventually winding up in Texas. He would then try to cross to California via Mexico, but was actually set upon by bandits and robbed of all his goods. Since the Union had regained West Texas by this time, Jones was quick to say to officials that, yes, I supported the Confederacy, but you can totally trust me now, in order to get back into the United States. Funny enough, Union leaders didn't buy this line, so he was stuck in Mexico until March 1864, when President Lincoln declared a general amnesty. Perhaps finding New Mexico a little too hot for him, Jones packed up and headed west to Arizona, finding a new home in Tucson, where he appears to have opened a legal practice. Here, the charming rogue was able to quickly gain some renown and new friends, and even went into a few mining ventures thanks to his claims that he knew of some gold-bearing quartz near Dragoon Springs that were ripe for prospecting which, once again, according to him, he couldn't have developed before due to Apache raids. I will also slip in a note here that he even bought a claim to mining rights near the old Guevavi mission from none other than Manuel Maria Gándara, the ex-governor of Sonora who was still on the outs politically, but would soon jump into the fray again with the upcoming French invasion of Mexico. Jones was in Tucson when it became a real town and somehow became popular enough to win an election to the first territorial legislature. On his way to Prescott for these duties, he would swing through the Salt River Valley and would later advocate moving the territorial capital there, making him, at least in this one thing, ahead of the times. Now, I'm not going to dive too deeply into his time in the legislature. Because he's really not going to do that much aside from again smooth talking his way into being named Speaker of the House of Representatives. Though that didn't stop him from embellishing his role later on, claiming that he had framed the first set of laws for the territory of Arizona. I will give him credit because during a nearly deadlocked debate about keeping the capital Prescott or moving it to La Paz, He did suggest a compromise by saying that building a capital city in the Salt River Valley would be a good idea. For this, he proposed the name Aztlan, once again due to the mistaken belief about Aztec influence this far north. This suggestion obviously did not pan out, but he was asked to prepare a set of public lectures on Arizona's history, geography, and resources, which were then printed. And boy howdy, I would have loved to sit in on this, given his penchant for lying. Also, he was appointed Corresponding Secretary when the legislature created the Arizona Historical Society. No relation to the organization that bears that name today. But, if you will permit me, I would like to close the books on the charming rogue who named Arizona. So, please forgive the long digression Because here is, in the words of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. On November 13th, 1864, three days after the legislature wrapped up, Jones participated in one of the first weddings in Prescott when he married Caroline E. Stevens, the daughter of some recent arrivals. The courtship was a whirlwind. When I say she was the daughter of recent arrivals, I mean very recent. Caroline's family had been in town less than a month and a half when they married. Plus, there was the fact that she was only 15 and Jones was nearing 50. Right after getting married, the newly formed Jones family headed back to Tucson, in company with another family and one of the newly appointed district court judges. The judge in particular remembers that Jones was super skittish about the possibility of an Apache attack so much so that he always suggested posting guards at night, though he suspiciously never volunteered for such duty himself. He was so paranoid about it that at one point the other members of the party sent two young native boys into the bushes just to make some noise and really give him a good scare. Now, fast forward about seven months to May of 1865. Jones and his wife had returned to Prescott, but three weeks after arriving, Jones up and vanished. Seriously, he left town, and Caroline never heard from or saw him again. Now, the reasons for this sudden departure and abandonment of his new wife and political position are not really well known at all. And a lot of people in Arizona were left scratching their heads about what had become of the charming lawyer and legislator. Farish, writing roughly 50 years after the fact, simply states, quote, His subsequent history, I have been unable to find." Luckily, we know a little more today. Jones actually went to San Francisco, where, during a chance run-in with another member of the Arizona legislature, he mentioned planning on going to Hawaii. In February 1866, he made it to Honolulu, where he told officials that he was a 48-year-old merchant from San Francisco. Bald face lies all around. Here he dove into politics again, being elected to the Kingdom of Hawaii's lower house in eighteen sixty eight, though he resigned a whopping nine days after the body convened, possibly because he'd gotten the fourteen year old daughter of a local noble family pregnant. Jones would actually end up staying with this girl, named Meme Kailihao, apologies to Any Hawaiians out there for my pronunciation. And the couple would have a total of five children together. Throughout the 1870s, Jones would be a judge in Honolulu, though the U.S. minister to the royal court remembers him as, quote, a second-rate attorney, end quote. He hadn't lost any of his charm, though, and the islanders who called him Aiko or Eagle for both his personality and the shape of his nose we're generally fond of him. Here we get some more of his characteristic boasting and, in the words of Jack Kelly from Newsies, improving on the truth about his time spent in the American West. The Islanders would later relate stories where supposedly Jones's name, quote, became a terror to the lawless bands of horse thieves and bandits, end quote, or he had fought, quote, a hundred fights with the Indians, End quote. It's a far cry from the man who was scared of two young boys making noises off in the bushes. In 1880, Jones threw his lot in with an Italian immigrant who had somehow wormed his way into the King of Hawaii's good graces. When the King dismissed his whole cabinet and appointed said Italian immigrant as Prime Minister, Jones quit his day job to become Hawaii's Attorney General and member of its Privy Council. However, this move scandalized the Hawaiian establishment and led to pressure from the US, France, and England, who were all concerned about their economic interests. As a result, the Italian, who seems to have had something of the same ruggish streak as Jones, was ousted after only serving as Prime Minister for four days. Jones, meanwhile, was only able to keep his position for six weeks. Now, he had given up a cushy job and salary for his latest attempt at nabbing some political power and prestige, so his fortunes now hit the skids. His wife, Maymay, died the next year, 1881, at the young age of 28. And Jones, being Jones, married wife number five just four short months later. Though he wound up divorcing his new bride just two years after that, charging her with flagrant acts of adultery. After one last political appointment to be Commissioner of Private Ways and Waterways at Hilo, Jones finally died on March 3, 1884. His obituary, printed in Hawaiian newspapers at the time, covered a lot of the claims and boasts that we've gone over today. L. Boyd Finch, whose article on Jones in the Journal of Arizona History makes up the bulk of what I've just told you, says that of the 16 claims made in these obituaries, four are probably true, four more are unverifiable, while a grand total of eight are demonstrably false. There is still a lot we don't know about Jones' life, mainly because, as I've said numerous times now, the main details had a habit of changing every time he related them. Was his mother actually a Spanish woman, thus accounting for his fluency in that language? Or did he ever actually travel to Central America, as he sometimes claimed? How about his having given lectures on temperance in Missouri? We may never be able to fully separate out the fact from the fiction in his life, but we can say that he did contribute in many ways to the shaping of Arizona he was one of the original boosters for creating the territory, first by splitting off the southern section of New Mexico, then as forming it as a Confederate territory, and finally as the U.S. territory that we know of today. And as much as he doesn't appear to have done much with the position, he was elected the first Speaker of the House of Representatives for the Arizona Territory and therefore had a hand in the debates and legislation when the new territory was getting up and on its feet. Finally, it's to him that goes the credit for really ingraining the name Arizona in the public consciousness for this new place between California and New Mexico. And since we have Poston's testimony, we can say with some certainty that it wasn't just another large, unverifiable claim on Jones's part. So thank you, William Claude Jones, for adding just one more eccentric biography to a place already chock-full of larger-than-life characters. Truly, you are not talked about enough. I suppose now that we have thoroughly talked about the men who made up Arizona's first legislature, it's time to talk about what they actually accomplished. So join me next week when we dive headlong into that momentous first session, as it tackles a variety of subjects, including mining, roads, laws, schools, counties, land claims, and Indians, Indians, and more Indians. Finally, the legislature would take up the thorniest issue of all, divorce. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen. And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.